Traditional methods of assessing student learning favor those students that reside in well-resourced school districts while leaving low-income students at a substantial disadvantage. These grading systems also encourage students to focus on their grades rather than on their learning. In this episode, we explore a variety of social justice assessment techniques that can create a more equitable environment in which all students can be successful. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guests today are Judith Littlejohn, Megan Freebold, and Caitlin Prager. Judy is the Director of Online Learning at SUNY Genesee Community College. Megan is an Instructional Technology Specialist at Elford University, and Caitlin is an Assistant Professor in the English Department at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Judy, Megan, and Caitlin work together on the SUNY Faculty Advisory Council on Teaching and Technology Committee on Social Justice Assessments. Welcome, Megan and Caitlin, and welcome back, Judy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today's teas are... I have Lady Grey. That's a good one. In my D2L mug. A nice desire to learn mug. I have iced green. And Caitlin, how about you? Mine's water right now. If it were the evening, I would have one bag of peppermint and one bag of chamomile together. Delicious. Sounds nice and calming. I have hot cinnamon spice tea. And I have black raspberry green tea. We've invited you here today to discuss your work on social justice assessment. Perhaps we can start with a discussion on what you mean by social justice assessment. So social justice assessment considers factors such as race, culture, language proficiency, socioeconomic status, and ability while working to dismantle systems of power, bias, and oppression in evaluation of student learning. So various approaches, including equitable assessment, labor-based grading, and ungrading as they relate to the purpose, process, wording, and structure of student learning assessments are included. So we're trying to focus on the learning that our diverse students achieve as it relates to specific learning outcomes, just to mitigate the influence of dominant norms on our students' grades. So we've all been working together for the last couple of years on a SUNY task group that was part of the Faculty Advisory Council on Teaching and Technology, which I chair. So we're a subcommittee of an innovations and assessment group. And there's a couple more of us who couldn't make it today, but we've been a really close knit group, I think, working together for over two years. And we really enjoyed the project, which resulted in a website with all these artifacts on it that people will be able to access. And we're hoping down the road that we can continue our work, but we'll get to that later on in this conversation. And we'll share a link to the overall website as well as your group-specific component of that in the show notes. So this is partly implied in your response defining social justice assessment, but what are some of the shortcomings of traditional grading systems in terms of equity? When we were doing our research on this topic, we encountered many drawbacks of the traditional types of assessments that we all experienced all the way up through school and into college. And I'll share a few of them. 
One is that the focus is often on the grade rather than the actual learning process and what the student will actually be able to do and be able to learn as a result of engaging in the education process. They just focus on the grade. What's my grade? And that sort of misses the point. It creates a system where students are compared to each other rather than having the focus be on individual growth and achievement. It also can put students at an advantage or disadvantage based on characteristics such as race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, disability status, language proficiency, and lots of other characteristics that students themselves don't have any control over. We've found in our research that traditional assessments tend to favor white, affluent, high-achieving students, and that really isn't who most of our students are anymore. So we really need to remove barriers and create a way for students to accurately represent the learning that has taken place. So you hinted to this in your response about traditional grading systems comparing students to one another. So thinking about that, what role should students play in determining how their learning is assessed? I'll tackle that one. And I want to answer it with a disclaimer to start because social justice assessments is an umbrella term that has all of these different strategies that are wrapped up in it. And each of those approaches, whether it's ungrading or labor-based grading, might have a slightly different response to that question. They all share the same goal that students should not be systemically disadvantaged by the assessment mechanisms and that we want to increase student agency in the classroom. We want students to be active participants in their own learning. But the actual question of how students might participate in determining their own assessments might look very different depending on who you're talking to and what approach they use. Maybe it's literally helping design the assessment mechanisms, the grading contract, grading rubric. Maybe it's creating flexible assignments that allow students to determine what learning is being assessed. Or in the case of ungrading, maybe it's just deprioritizing the assessment entirely in order to emphasize the individual student's learning journey through the course. So I guess my answer tentatively to your question is, yeah, students should be participants in determining how their learning is assessed, but the big how and why is going to differ. As you noted, there's a wide continuum of alternative grading policies that can fit under this category of social justice assessment. Some of them are not that much different than traditional practices, and others are quite a bit different. One approach, which is much closer to the traditional grading systems that people are already using, is a system of mastery learning. Could you talk a little bit about what mastery learning is and how that could be used in the classroom to provide a bit more equity. So mastery learning is instead of assessing a student or evaluating a student with one assessment and giving them that grade, the students are able to go back and revisit the content and work again on any material that they didn't understand or try things over again. So it's an iterative process and they should get some sort of formative feedback in between attempts so that they can understand what it is they need to work on and focus on. And this way, it's more equitable because the students are able to take the amount of time that they need to work on the assessment. They can access any review materials that they need to establish their foundational knowledge and continue on. 
And it just really helps the students learn and grow. And I think it's a great way to establish foundational knowledge. I use it myself in all the history courses that I teach. And I just think it's a great process. If you think about it, any athlete, that's what they do. So if you're learning how to play baseball, how many hours are spent in a batting cage or on the pitcher's mound? How many times do you try again and again and again until you are able to do it correctly or do things accurately? So I always liken it to use that sports analogy because I really think that helps people understand that students learning, you have to practice. And you can't tell somebody something once and expect them to integrate it into all the knowledge they already have and be able to recall it instantly. So I just think it's a great way to level the playing field of students so that when you move on to the next part of your content, they all have the same foundation and they're ready to go forward. And by explaining it to students that way in terms of a sports metaphor, it's something that they can pretty easily connect to. And I think it also would help to promote a growth mindset, which we know is effective in increasing learning as well. Another assessment strategy one might use is minimal or light grading that falls under this social justice umbrella and is a bit different than mastery learning. Can you describe what minimal or light grading is? Yeah, I've seen this described in a couple of different ways. This isn't something that we really included in a lot of our research. So I kind of looked this up just a little while ago. And it's very interesting. And one approach is more on like the whole course level. And there's another approach that can be taken on an assignment level. So for an entire course, what an instructor may do is that they would assign assignments throughout the semester, but most of them would not be graded. They would be used as like a conversation piece and they would be discussed and gone over during class which would then provide opportunities for the students to seek clarification and for the instructor to provide feedback in the moment. So then the assessment then becomes part of the learning process. So then when there are a small number of assessments that are given for a grade, then when the students get to those assessments, they're not as intimidating. They're things that they've done with their classmates. They've done them with their instructors. They've done them in class. So I think it's a very interesting strategy because it removes a lot of the anxiety that students may have around assessment because it's just something that they've done in their class. Another take on this that I've seen is on an assignment level, something like a paper, something that may require a lot of revision, where when the professor is grading that assessment, they would maybe not take the time to go through and mark all of the grammar and spelling and mechanical errors, but maybe they would look at a section of that, maybe point out some things that the students are doing over and over again, but not mark up the entire paper, but just say, okay, these are the things that you need to pay attention to that are recurring through your paper. And then as they read and grade that student's paper, they focus more on the message that the student is trying to convey and the ideas that they're sharing rather than the mechanics and the grammar and the spelling. And one common thing I think to both mastery learning and minimal light grading is that the goal is to provide students with feedback. In some cases that can be automated. Mastery learning systems involve some degree of automation, sometimes by textbook providers or perhaps adaptive learning systems, or it could be questions that you put together. But if you're going to provide feedback on writing, 
it can require a lot more time and a minimal or light grading approach allows faculty to provide feedback on the most important things without taking up as much time to allow faculty to provide feedback on a wider range of topics, which again is I think to some extent in the same sort of spirit. Light grading can help not intimidate a student with too much feedback. If you see just a paper completely marked up, it might feel like there's no possibility for moving forward or revising, but emphasizing what's most important to change or most important to focus on can help a student prioritize. And this can be really important to someone new to a discipline who might not know what's most important. I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) There's an element of trust there as well, because if we point out what a student needs to focus on mechanically or grammar-wise in a small part of that paper, then they can be trusted to then use their judgment to go through it and read it more carefully and then make those edits based on the feedback that they had received. So it is visually much less intimidating. Plus, it might be a motivating factor for some students too, that their professor is trusting them to be in charge of that revision. Another type of social justice assessment involves contract grading. Could one of you talk a little bit about how contract grading fits into this category of social justice assessment? Sure. I think contract grading is one of those terms that's gaining some broader popularity and recognition. So it's probably a term that may be pretty familiar to a lot of instructors at this point. So maybe it doesn't need a lot of explanation. I'll just say there's a couple different models of contract grading. In some cases, the instructor might provide that contract at the start of the term. In other cases, the instructor and students would be able to negotiate that contract collaboratively together at the start of the term so that students have more of that active stake in the contract itself. Generally, the grading contract would lay out certain requirements which students would need to fulfill to receive their desired grade, and that might include requirements related to attending class or conferences, completing low-stakes assignments, completing major assignments, maybe some page or process-based requirements. But the bottom line is that the contract gives students a clear picture from day one of the work required by the class. So students can look at that contract and know exactly how much work they're going to need to complete from day one to get the grade that they really want to receive in the course. I think the additional benefit of contract grading for our conversation is that it decouples grades from assessment. So students have more space to take risks in their work rather than aiming for correctness. And on the faculty side, faculty can respond to the content and spirit of the student's work as opposed to justifying a grade. I think most important though, because this system privileges students who are investing the time and effort into their learning, all students have the same potential to earn a high grade in the course regardless of their knowledge or ability with the subject matter prior to the start of the course. So to use another sports metaphor, it works to level the playing field on day one for students who may have very different levels of preparedness and experience with the subject matter. Another strategy that folks might use, which we've certainly talked about quite a bit on this podcast at various times, is peer assessment. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and how that fits into this social justice model? So peer assessment, or I tend to call it peer review, helps to build student investment in writing 
It helps the students understand the relationship between their writing and their coursework by helping them engage with the writing in a way that encourages more self-reflection and works to help them build their critical thinking skills about their own work. And I think it also helps the students learn from one another because they're sort of trying to evaluate their peers' work against the requirements for the course, but then you also look at your own writing in a new perspective and you learn from what you're seeing your peers write and from the feedback that you're receiving from your peers. Might students perhaps take feedback from their fellow classmates a bit more seriously than they do feedback from their instructors? A lot of students self-report that they learn more from this peer review activity because they're trying to identify and articulate weaknesses that they're seeing in their peers' papers and also in their own. And I think trying to incorporate feedback from both their peers and their instructor into their own work, I think just helps raise that awareness and any kind of feedback that's constructive as they think about it and reiterate it and rewrite their work. It just helps with their critical thinking and I think just raise awareness of how they write and maybe they can be more thoughtful about what they're writing going forward. I think they also, if they question their peers, say, how did you come up with this? I love this idea. Then they can apply some of this that they're learning from their peers to their own work too. So perhaps that's what you were getting at, John, when you asked that question was they may benefit more from their classmates telling them how they came up with their ideas then from their instructor, just dictating what the expectations are. I would expand the model to include not just writing, but also other creative projects and things. It's certainly a practice that's pretty common in the arts, for example, to do peer review of student work. And they also get to see what their peers are doing, which can serve as a positive role model. When students see that other people are doing something that they hadn't considered doing, it could serve as a way of improving their work. I think a lot of students come into the classroom thinking of their teacher as the sole reader or audience for their creations throughout the course of the semester. So anytime we can expand those audiences and have students thinking rhetorically about who else might be the consumer of their work, I think that that can benefit our students in really important ways. It also seems like it's a good opportunity to formulate community around an activity like that. Absolutely. One of the other areas you address with this group was the topic of labor-based grading. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, labor-based grading removes the focus from the end product assignment and shifts it to the process of creating that piece of work. So students are provided with feedback throughout the process regarding their labor or the work that they put in, and they're given opportunities to continue working to improve what they're producing and to achieve a desired grade based on a contract sometimes. So there is some overlap with contract grading, but not always. There typically aren't penalties for students who revise and update their work because that's part of the learning process. And it really helps students determine what their end grade may be and how much effort they want to put in because often they will be given some sort of guideline for what different grades may be achieved based on certain levels of effort or certain levels of work that are completed. And also there may be opportunities to grade based on completion rather than more of a subjective sort of qualitative grade. 
So do you mean like using a light grading or minimal grading where you either completed it satisfactorily or you haven't? And as long as you complete a certain number of assignments or activities, you achieve that grade? That or also if there's criteria like a rubric and they hit all of the criteria, then they receive full credit. Which becomes actually, I think, a form of specifications grading. And then one other model that you've talked a little bit about already today is ungrading. Can you expand upon that a little bit more? Yeah. So ungrading works to deprioritize numerical grades or even attempt to eliminate them entirely. So I hope I'm not speaking out of turn when I say I think that this is the most controversial of the approaches that we have been researching. It tends to get the most pushback from faculty because it is so different from what we have often been taught or trained to do. So instead of focusing on those numerical grades, instructors are encouraged to focus on providing learner feedback that encourages growth. Okay, I have a quote that is from an ungrading expert I'd like to share. This is from Sean Michael Morris, and he says, quote, at the foundation of ungrading lies something that could change school entirely, a suggestion that ranking and evaluation and the concomitant expertise of the ranker or evaluator is entirely an optional way of viewing things. And I'm going to end the quote there because I think that that important kernel is that ungrading works to dismantle the hierarchy of the classroom and refocus the attention on individual student learning. It's an approach that requires a lot of trust between student and instructor and a lot of student buy-in as well. Students have to be invested in the learning that's going to happen throughout the course itself. And in a completely ungraded classroom, student grades might be based simply on a final student reflection or even a one-on-one conversation between teacher and student about the grade that the student has earned. But because ungrading really rejects transactional grading systems, the final grade is more of an afterthought than an important outcome of the course, much less important than the learning that's occurred throughout the semester. So today we're recording on August 9th. James Lang posted on Twitter about how deep the system of grading actually is, that there's even things like discounts for insurance for good students or good grades, and that it's really challenging to overcome a system that's so ingrained beyond just our education system, but into many other systems as well. So I think that that in part is why there's such a strong pushback on this particular method. And we've always done it that way, at least for the last century or so. Change is hard. Yeah, I think that the traditional grading system is really embedded into not only academia, but outside of academia as well. And even within a class that takes an ungrading approach, we still face that question at the end of the semester of, well, what's the grade going to be in the system? Because we don't really have the option, at least at most institutions, to say, no grade job well done. At least at my institution, I still have to put in a letter grade for the student. So we can work to reject that system as much as we can. But at the end of the day, we're still operating within that same structure. And maybe that's a question of what's next, right? Like, are we going to see one day a future where more universities embrace this idea of learning for the sake of learning as opposed to learning for the grade? I don't know. 
One of the other things you address on the website is how perhaps the use of authentic assessment or UDL types of assessments might improve equity by providing a more equal playing field for students. Could you talk a little bit about how going beyond the traditional term papers and tests might provide a more equitable way of assessing students' learning? I think anytime you use authentic assessment, that helps or generally it allows the students the opportunity to demonstrate their learning in the way that works best for them. If students are writing a term paper, for example, they can write the paper the traditional way, or they can give a presentation or record a presentation and still provide their citations and so forth at the end. Or they can do something visual, some sort of a PowerPoint or a nice visual display of the topic and again, cite their sources and explain their images to the group so that people understand how they're meeting the learning outcome. And I feel like that's just a good way if people are struggling with language, if people are just struggling with writing in general, I think that this levels the playing field because it gives everybody an opportunity to really show their knowledge and shine and not just pigeonhole themselves into one more paper or one more multiple choice test if they have test anxiety. Some of our traditional forms of testing or final assessment just set students up to fail and allowing students to choose to demonstrate their learning in a way that they're good at sets them up to succeed. And I think that's what we really want at the end of the day. And of course, UDL principles, those are universal design for learning, and that does include equity in its part. So that would definitely help to keep things equitable in the classroom if you're following UDL. The multiple forms you were just talking about is a great example. <laughs> Last semester, I had a student who they were supposed to do a blog post. And the student, instead of writing a blog post, he made a video and he did it three different times. So one is on World War One, one's on World War Two, and the third one was on revolutions. And so this student stood in front of a whiteboard and he had his camera set up so he could film himself and he had his iPad in his hand. So he'd talk about a battle, say, for example, and he would draw it out on the board and then he would show his citation on his iPad. And then he had other citations typed up and taped to the whiteboard. And he went on for 15 minutes and just was making sure he explained things again and drew little examples. And he was so animated and so excited about his topic. And you're not going to capture that on a written exam or even in somebody's written paper. It was just tremendous the way he was able to show all that he had learned and all that he was interested in and the extra research that he had done because he felt the freedom to pursue this topic because he knew he was able to express it the way that suited him the best. It was just amazing. So I think anytime we can incorporate these things, and I understand that there are times when according to your accreditor or people have to sometimes sit for a specific certification. It doesn't always fit, but I think if you can fit this type of assessment in, it's definitely worth it because just to see the joy in students when they can explore and expand their knowledge and then feel confident in demonstrating that to you, it's just tremendous. I love the flexibility in demonstrating knowledge and understanding and skill sets because in some of our traditional methods, we are arbitrarily assessing something else. 
So we may be arbitrarily testing how well you can take a multiple choice test or how well you can take a test within a certain time frame or how well you can write, whether or not that's actually the topic. So if I'm learning about history, there's some learning objectives I'm trying to meet related to history that may or may not include writing. And if writing's not one of those outcomes that we're hoping for, then we don't need to be assessing it. Exactly. He did this thing on medical advancements in World War I. It was just tremendous. And he was so charming because he just was so wrapped up in it that you just had to root for the guy. It was good. I love that. So for those of us who may want to move towards equitable grading systems, what are some initial steps we might take? Because it could feel really daunting if you haven't ventured down this path before. Yeah, if you are not interested in overhauling your entire grading system just to try this out and to make your assessments more socially just, there are some adjustments that can be made to existing assignments. And really the important thing is to consider the learning objectives and really think about what needs to be graded. So one of the things that we've talked about a lot in all of our different presentations that we've done is whether or not to grade for things like grammar and spelling and mechanics and English language proficiency. So in an example like a discussion board, when you're really interested in what the students have to say and their interaction with each other and the questions that they ask, does it really matter if their grammar and spelling is perfect in that instance, if they're having a great conversation on a topic and they're learning from each other? So that's one thing that we could suggest. Another is thinking about just the fact that sometimes students have challenges in their lives. They're human beings. They have families. They have jobs. Many of our students are athletes and they have to travel and they have games. And something like flexible due dates is very, very helpful for students because then they're able to complete their work, certainly within a reasonable time frame. But if those dates are a little bit more flexible and they have access to those assignments in the learning management system beyond the actual due date, for instance, then that gives them the ability to complete that work without being penalized. So another mechanism would be in the learning management system when students are taking quizzes would be allowing backtracking, allowing students to go back and check their answers. That sometimes is a setting that a lot of professors really rely on to try to avoid cheating. And as an LMS administrator, that is something that I see a lot. And I think that that can really be harmful to students because many of our students are told to always go back and check your work. And if they're not allowed to go back and check their work, that can be very frustrating. And also forcing completion is something that I would recommend turning off because again, that can create test anxiety. And often I think when completion is forced, there's also a timer. So I think if any timers can be removed as well, then that does a couple of things. It can help remove test anxiety, but then also if there are students who require extra time due to a disability accommodation, then the professor at that point doesn't have to go in and adjust all of the LMS settings for those students because it's already open-ended and everyone can have as much time as they need to complete that assessment. So it really is just important to look at what the learning objectives are and what actually needs to be assessed. And the goal is always to remove barriers. So another thing that can be done is to just ask students 
have a conversation about it and find out what barriers they've experienced. At the start of this, you mentioned the website that you were creating. Could you talk a little bit more about what resources are there and how that might evolve over time? Yeah, so the website we have been slowly adding resources to over the past two years. And at this point, it's becoming a pretty robust little outlet for people interested in social justice assessments. So if you go to the website, you can find an overview of the big picture theory of social justice assessment, as well as the various approaches that we've discussed today. We also have a really pretty large bibliography of resources for further reading for people who want to learn more about any one of these topics. And we've been working to develop a collection of sample assignments from faculty across SUNY. So we're still working to collect additional sample assignments from faculty who might already be implementing some of these strategies within their classrooms. I think the more we can share those assignments with one another, the better off we'll all be. I think a lot of us are doing social justice assessment in small ways in our classroom without realizing it. So the more we can share those resources and that knowledge, the more hopefully we can get people on board. So hopefully we'll be able to share that link in the show notes and people will be able to check that out. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? So for our little group, one thing that I think might be next for us is SUNY is updating the SUNY general education requirements that are mandated with the completion of any SUNY degree. And they've added a requirement for equity, inclusion, and diversity. So I'm hoping that our group can help contribute resources to that effort. And our website could be one more place where people go to for information on social justice assessments so that they can incorporate those into their courses that are designed to meet the DEI requirement. Well, I'm going to go take my one-year-old to the pool. (laughs) Nice. I think big picture, the what's next I want to just give is I hope that we'll start to see more institutional support for some of these approaches. I think that there are still a lot of barriers, particularly for contingent faculty who want to embrace some of these practices. So I hope what's next will be more departmental, institutional support for this, more time, more resources, et cetera. But yeah, my personal what's next is I'm going to go enjoy this beautiful day. Megan, do you want to add anything? Sure. Yeah. At my institution, I am sharing this information pretty much any chance I get. I'm meeting with our new incoming faculty in a couple of weeks, and this will be one of the topics that we discuss. And I'm also co-chair of our Universal Design for Learning Task Force, and we have a few events and projects that we're working on to spread the word on UDL and also innovative assessments and social justice assessments as well. Lots of great things coming and some really wonderful resources that you've shared today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for all the great work you've done on this over the last couple of years and the resources you're sharing. I would just like to say that Shana Silvato is also in our group. She's at Portland, I believe. And Chris Price from SUNY is in our group and they are missed today. They've been with us for all our other presentations. (laughs) I know that Shana in particular wants to get the band back together and have some more meetings going forward so we can keep working together. And it was really good to see you guys again. Likewise. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.